Good morning. Welcome to Fellowship. My name is David. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's great to spend some time with you and to uh, begin in God's Word with you together. We're going to talk about a subject today that uh, was became part of my life when I was 11 years old. I professed my faith in Christ at Lakewood Christian Church in McAllister, Oklahoma, and my father baptized me. And uh, so uh, I don't know if you are able to remember your baptism, but uh, it really is kind of a hallmark moment in the life of a follower of Christ. And we're going to explore baptism today. But I'd like to begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm just going to read this, and it's not going to be on the screen, but I just want you to hear these words. 1 Corinthians 15, starting verse 1, says, Now I remind you, brothers of the gospel, I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word, I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And so in this message series called Signs, we're looking at what are the signs of connection that we have with the living God. And we have a connection with God only because of what his son, Jesus Christ, accomplished for us. So two weeks ago, we had the subject of our confession. What do we confess about Jesus, who he is and what he has done? The Son of God who died for our sin and He rose from the dead. And we stand on that confession of faith. Last week we looked at the first of two signs. That sign was communion. And how we take communion to remind us of the payment that was made by Jesus for us. Because of our sin, a holy God must judge sin. And so Jesus stood in our place. He took all of the wrath of God Scripture tells us that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that was Jesus' work on the cross, and we were given specific instruction of taking bread and wine or juice as our practice to remember the payment Jesus made, the sacrifice, the cost of the cross for our salvation. This week we look at a second sign, an ordinance to the church of baptism. And so we're going to start in church, then we're going to go to the classroom then we're going to come back to church. Okay, that's going to be our flow this morning. So we're going to present God's word and what our beliefs are as a church. Then we're going to explore some questions. There might be some controversy. But then we'll uh, we'll come back to church. So before we get started, I want to just cover a few things uh, just to set the stage as we talk about what we believe in practice. The first is, is that the idea of baptize, it's a word that means to dip or immerse. Baptizo means to, to dip or immerse. And so if you had a white linen cloth and you wanted to change its color, you would baptize the cloth into another dye so it would take on a new color. Okay? That's the, that's the meaning behind the word. It's why we actually put people underwater and we bring them back up because that's the actual meaning of the word. To immerse or to wash or to dip. Now, there's a couple of ideas of baptism, and I just want to make a distinction. One is spirit baptism, and this is when you profess your faith in Christ. God seals you as his as His own child by placing the Holy Spirit within you. This is no work of yours. It's done for you by the power of God, and the Spirit comes and rests on you. And this truth is affirmed for us in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. 
It talks about how, based upon our belief in the work of Christ for us, the Spirit is a seal, a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance with, with our Heavenly Father. That is spirit baptism. And then there's the practice of water baptism. And that's going to be our subject this morning. Water baptism is an act of obedience to Christ that portrays the truth that we were saved by grace through faith in Him. It's an act of obedience to Christ. So this is a practice that we have in response to who He is and what He's done, just as we take communion and just as we make a confession of our faith. It's all in a response to who Christ is and what He has done for us. And so we're going to explore this idea. But I want to share with you our church doctrinal statement. You can see our full doctrinal statement online. Go to our website and under About Us, you'll find our full statement. But let me read this for you. It says, We believe baptism is a picture that portrays a variety of scriptural truths. It proclaims Christ's death and resurrection. It serves public notice to the world of one's new life in Christ. And it pictures a believer's death to sin and his resurrection to spiritual life and lifestyle through the power of the Holy Spirit. It goes on to clarify that we believe that baptism does not save, but every believer, serious in his or her own faith, will also be serious about baptism. The command of Scripture is, be baptized. By it, we both please the Lord and declare his reality in our lives and to the world. So I want to go back through our doctrinal statement. It's included on the notes for you and just give some further explanation. The first thing that baptism portrays, one of the first truths, is of Christ's own death and resurrection. Just as communion is a symbol of his death, baptism is a picture of both his death and his resurrection. The water is a picture of God's judgment, which is a theme that really starts in the Old Testament. The first picture of water being a, uh, a form of God's judgment was the flood. The world had turned its heart away from God, and God could only find one faithful family, and that was Noah. And God sent a flood that covered the world, and God judged the world through water. And he promised not to do that on, uh, again. Um, he's going to choose fire next time. That's... But we also come to an individual named Jonah. And Jonah ran from God. God called him to, do a, a, to preach a message of repentance in a city of Nineveh. Jonah wanted nothing to do with that, so he went as far away from God. He hopped a ship and sailed across the Mediterranean Sea, and things got rough. The only solution that they could come up with was to do what to Jonah? Throw him into the sea. Throw him into the water. Throw him into God's judgment. But God in his grace spared him and three days later brought him back to a renewed life. Sounds like someone else you might have heard of. So Jesus' death and his burial is pictured in baptism. Romans 6 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So baptism is a remembrance. It's a reminder that Jesus died under the judgment of God. But he rose again because he is the sinless, perfect son of God. That's what baptism portrays. It's a beautiful picture of what Christ did for us. It's also this public proclamation. It serves public notice. When the gospel was first declared, it was declared in the city of Jerusalem. 
Jesus had just been crucified. He had risen from the dead. And some days later, he ascended into heaven. And before he did, he promised those who believed in him that the Holy Spirit would come upon them and they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. That's Acts 1.8. And so Jesus ascended to heaven. The people waited. And finally, the Holy Spirit was poured out on these group of Jewish believers in the city of Jerusalem. And they began doing incredible signs. They were able to speak in languages not known to them, but there were people in this metropolitan area that were from different regions of the Roman Empire. And they heard their home languages being spoke. I met a couple of young men from Latvia from this last service. Maybe they spoke Latvian. I don't know. The people thought that these Jewish people must have somehow gotten drunk. That was the only explanation. And Peter stood up and delivered the first sermon. And he said, they're not drunk. But what has happened has because of what they has been done through the work of Jesus Christ, whom you put to death. And so he does this very bold confrontational message. And this is what it says. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent, turn. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so those who received his word, those who professed their faith in Christ, they were baptized and added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, there are some very tired people in the room this morning. They just returned from Israel and they stood in the temple grounds and they saw the unearthed ritual baths where this really happened where over 3,000 people gave public notice that Jesus is the risen one, the Savior of the world. That's what baptism declares. It's a public statement. I did not save myself. I trusted in the work that Jesus did for me. And Jesus promises in Matthew 10, 32, a beautiful promise that says, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. It's this image that when, when those who make a stand for Christ, Jesus who is seated at the right hand of the Father, stands. It's like when I hit a double, my Father goes, that's my boy. But only much more grandiose. The paper said I hit two singles, but I hit a double. third truth is that not only does baptism portray a picture of Christ's baptism to give a public notice to those who are around, but it also pictures what has happened to us, what we died to, and the new life that we rise to. Pictures a believer's death to sin and his resurrection or her resurrection to a spiritual life and lifestyle through the power of the Holy Spirit. Anyone can find salvation in Christ. All of us have turned away from the perfect, holy plan of God to walk our own way. To walk, to seek life on our own terms. But then, nothing satisfies the human soul. And so many of you were brought to a point of great need, and you found Jesus. The answer for your soul. You learned that He died for you. There's nothing for you to earn. He paid the price for you. So you gave your heart to him, you put your trust in him, and then you turned 
to walk after him, to follow him. And baptism is a statement of, I died to sin and I rise to new life in Christ. That's the meaning behind baptism. It's a public proclamation of the work of Jesus and the transformation that's happened within you because of your faith in Christ. So now let's go to the classroom. You guys ready? Um, Before we do, uh, I want to remind you of, of this truth. Having been buried with Christ in Colossians 2, in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Christ, forgiven you all of your trespasses. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside Nailing it to the cross. There is no debt of sin that hangs over you. In Christ, you are free. You're free. Baptism is a, is a shout of what's happened for you. And that you've received it by faith. So let's answer this question. Is baptism necessary for salvation? It's an important question because there are church traditions that would say that it is. One would be the Church of Christ, often linked with a a movement known as the Restoration Movement, where they're seeking to abide by New Testament teaching. Another is the Roman Catholic Church, and I'll get into that a little bit more specifically in just a moment. There are passages that, that seem to indicate that baptism might be necessary for salvation, but Our statement is this, is baptism is essential, not necessary. It's essential. It's part of following Jesus. There is a command for us to be obedient to Christ in baptism. Matthew 28, 18 through 20 is the Great Commission. Jesus says to his followers, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to be very careful to obey all that I've commanded you, and I will be with you always to the end of the age. He says, go, make disciples, baptizing them. It was the essential step of discipleship. In the New Testament, a profession of faith was accompanied by baptism. They are theologically distinct. One is is the acknowledgement, the confession that Jesus has saved me. But I express it by baptism. And they didn't mess around. It was confession and baptism. And so they are paired together. They are linked but they are distinct. Luke 23 speaks about the thieves on the cross. And one condemns Christ, one silences the other thief and declares a faith proclamation that Jesus was without sin. He had done no wrong. And Jesus said to the thief on the cross, as Jesus himself was being crucified, he said, truly today you will be with me in paradise. And Jesus died first. And so the death of Christ broke the power of sin, made salvation possible by faith in him, and the thief on the cross entered the presence of God with Christ that day. But he wasn't able to be water baptized. 
It's a little tied up. It's kind of dark. Then in Acts, we find one group of people that receive the gospel, and they get water baptized first, and then they get spirit baptized. And it might indicate that, wow, maybe, maybe it was water baptism that saved them, because that happened first, and then the spirit came. And that happened when the gospel went to an area called Samaria. Samaria were, were people that had Jewish heritage, but they had married Gentile people. The Jews despised them. They viewed them as muggles, half-bloods. People that had, had, uh, had left uh, um, the family of God to intermarry with those they should not have. So they wanted nothing to do with them. But the gospel goes to them and Samaritans could find and follow Jesus Christ. And so the apostles send some eyewitnesses to go to see for themselves. And Peter and John, and they go. And when they see that they've been baptized in the name of Christ, they see the Holy Spirit fall out on them. And we could perhaps think that maybe, maybe water baptism, because it came first, is what, is what saved them. But then you come into Acts chapter 10 in a region called Caesarea, a Gentile area. The gospel goes to them. These are people that have no affiliation with the Jewish nation at all. And now they're professing their faith in Christ. They're being saved. Peter comes and they find that the Holy Spirit has poured out on them, but they haven't received water baptism. And he says, who can withhold baptism from them? Let them be baptized. And so here, water baptism follows spirit baptism. Are you tracking with me? The thing that saves you is your faith in Christ alone. Not the order and not the water. This may also help you. Baptism is closely related to various truths. It's true. But it's often used as a synonym or an idea that's called a metonym. Metonymy. Say it with me. Metonymy. I told you we were going to class. So with metonymy, it's one large idea that contains a variety of truths within it. If we were to turn on the news and we would hear, Today from Washington, the president sent another tweet. <laughs> the idea of Washington contains at least Three judicial, or the judicial, the legislative, and the executive branch, right? But it's called Washington. That's metonymy. With baptism, baptism is like an umbrella. And the New Testament authors, they kind of go in and out because it was always linked with a profession of faith. It was not separated. You didn't have year after, and years upon years from a profession until you got baptized. It was how you publicly declared it. We might have language of like, I was baptized, or I prayed the sinner's prayer, or I went forward, or I, I acknowledged my sin, I, I walked that aisle. And those are phrases that refer to a much larger truth. So within the idea of baptism in the New Testament is conversion, forgiveness, repentance, dedication, receiving the word, believing in Christ. All of these ideas, belonging to the family of God, the church, and becoming a disciple, all of that. Is tied in closely. And so then we come to a passage like this that's found in 1 Peter 3.21. And it says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. And we go, oh no. What are we supposed to do with this passage? Because it says, baptism saves us. Well, I think the answer is found in the context and in the verse itself. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
When Peter writes that what he's talking about is corresponding to, what, he, what it corresponds to is he refers back to Noah and how Noah was spared from God's judgment and was saved through the waters, through carried by faith through that experience and he was rescued by God. Corresponding to that, baptism is a picture of that. It's not the physical washing. It's not this mysterious quality of water that cleanses us. It's not physical washing, but it's tied to an appeal to God for a good conscience. That appeal to God is our faith declaration in Christ because it's linked to what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it shows how closely paired baptism is with this idea of a profession of faith. They are theologically distinct, but practically inseparable. That's how this works. And we know it's not about the removal of dirt because our water is Shawnee County and it's good, but it's not that good. (laughs) So who should be baptized? I think the New Testament teaching is clear. Baptism is for all who have trusted in Christ for salvation. That's the practice. An Ethiopian eunuch was searching the scriptures. God led Philip, an apostle, to come and proclaim faith to him, to help him understand the gospel. He believes in Christ and receives Christ by faith. And then they find that there's enough water that they can go down into, get immersed, come back up and be baptized. The apostle Paul, he used to be the persecutor of the church. After Jesus rose from the dead, he led the charge in condemning Christians until Jesus confronted him. He submitted to Christ, turned to the Lord in faith, and then under the leadership of another disciple, Paul received baptism. It's an immediate response to your faith, and all who have trusted in Christ uh, should be baptized. So then this leads us to this question of what about babies? What about infants? And what are the traditions around this? Let me just ask, how many of you were baptized as an infant? You are in good company, right? How many of you never raise your hand in church regardless? (laughs) I see that. Many of you in this room come from a tradition of infant baptism. So let me give you a clear statement from our practice and belief, and then we'll go into where the traditions, what they say. Infants are not able to profess faith for themselves and should not be baptized. No clear, explicit instruction exists to baptize infants in the New Testament. Here at Fellowship, our practice is child dedication, and it's going to happen next weekend. Just go online, register your kids for child dedication. It's a beautiful moment of where promises are made by the parents over the child from, from the church family to the, to the parents and parents speak their, their godly desires over their kids. It's beautiful and I want you to be a part of it. We're also baptizing people next weekend also. Convenient. Now as I move forward in this topic, we must be humble and respectful. Because when it comes to the baptism of infants, this first alternate view is the Protestant view. And this is practiced by Anglicans, Methodists, Presbyterians, Lutherans, and other traditions. Even the Evangelical Free Church, which in a lot of ways would be very similar to a non-denominational Bible church, they leave it up to the clergy to decide whether or not there is infant baptism. Where do they come from on this? First is, is that in the Old Testament, God made a covenant with Abraham. And that he would establish a nation through which he would bless the world. 
And there was a physical sign given to this covenant promise that they were to mark every male with circumcision. It was a physical sign. And those who practice infant baptism say that baptism replaces circumcision as the covenant sign, the new covenant that has been brought in by Christ. And I would agree that baptism is a sign, just as communion is a sign. But the central sign of being in the new covenant is God has come within. And we have the Holy Spirit now. And he remains with us unconditionally. And we are sealed in his work. That is the central sign of the new covenant. It is the Holy Spirit who has taken up his residence in us by faith. Baptism is a sign. But that's where they're coming from. They say it's the new form of circumcision. It places an infant into, they believe, a covenant family. Some of you have never known a time in your life where you didn't know about God. And if someone says, hey, when did you come to Christ? You're like... I don't know. I've always known about the Lord. I've always loved the Lord. I I, I can't find a time or date or place. And what the traditions see that, that a special baptism is given to infants as a sign that they belong to the family of God and that they are in a special state where they can know and love the Lord and then later are confirmed. Some traditions believe that the infant baptism breaks Adam's sin or original sin. And that the child becomes then culpable for their own sin later and they go through a process of confirmation or catechism or some discipleship teaching. And that's their practice. They also take the word households. And we find the word households in Acts chapter 16. Paul goes and he gets imprisoned. And when he's in prison, uh, God sends an earthquake and the gates of the prison open up. The Philippian jailer knows Roman law. If any prisoner escapes under your watch, you are going to die. He's about to kill himself. And Paul goes, yo, don't. We're still here. He shares his faith with the Philippian jailer. He places his faith in Christ. Immediately, the Philippian jailer wants him to come to his home. And it says that he and his household who received the word were baptized. And when the idea of household is used, primarily, there's a statement of those who received the word. So it indicates to our tradition that those in the household are those who could understand the gospel and profess their faith. But in the case of Lydia, which is later in verse 33 in Acts 16, the text doesn't say those who received the word. It says Lydia and all her household were baptized. And so there is a reading into the text that that would have included infants because of the idea of household. You with me? That's where they're coming from. But here's where humility needs to come in. This started in the church in 170 AD or around that time. By 180 AD, Irenaeus is going to write about how Jesus became an infant for infants, a child for children, and that at each level of stage, he became a savior. By 193 AD, Tertullian is going to write against the practice of infant baptism and say it's going to be for those only who believe. But he was the minority voice. And as you move forward in church history, the debate, doesn't cha- the debate changes away from should we baptize infants to what day? Because in the Old Testament, they were circumcised on the eighth day. So can an infant, do they have to be on the eighth day? And the church fathers couldn't agree and there were different traditions. But it's not until 1500s. This was a practice before the formation of the Roman Catholic Church. It's not until the 1500s that a group of Anabaptists spoke against this, and the church put them to death for it. 
More Christians died after 1500 A.D. than died from 0 to 300 A.D. Thousands of people lost their lives for making a faith or a statement about baptism like I just gave you by brothers and sisters in the church. So these are people who, they love the Lord. They believe Scripture's true. But this is where their views are coming from, and it differs than what we would practice here at Fellowship. Then there's the Roman Catholic view. The Roman Catholic Church has developed over the years uh, their understanding of truth. It's, their truth stands on three legs of a stool, and they see each leg as equal and authoritative. One is the truth of Scripture. The second is the traditions of the church and the teachings of the church. And then the third is the word of the Pope. All are equal in God's revelation. So for them, in the development of their traditions, they have, they have developed works or practices that work in connection with God to dispense grace. We would say from a Protestant tradition, the only conveying of grace is through Christ alone. That there is not this interaction. And so with infant baptism, this is what happens. A priest prays a prayer called epiclesis over water. You've heard the idea of holy water. Where it comes from this practice where the priest prays a special prayer over the water, which brings the Holy Spirit into the water. So the water becomes at that point holy or sanctified. And then the water is taken and then sprinkled on the infant. And by receiving that, the infant is brought into salvation. And they would say it is salvation by grace through faith. But it's the faith of the church. The faith of the church is effective, according to Roman Catholic tradition and teaching, for the salvation of an infant. And so a Roman Catholic, if asked, when did you become a Christian? They will answer, at my baptism. At my baptism. And it's a sacrament. It's, a, it's something that conveys grace to them. And then they go through another sacrament, which is catechism, which teaches them the teachings of, the, of some of the Scripture, teachings of the church, and then that leads them to their own confirmation of their faith. And then they sustain salvation through the taking of the Eucharist. Again, it's a different view of, than Protestants, where they believe that the bread and the, and the wine literally transform into the, into the body and the blood of Jesus, and that's what sustains saving grace for you. So their tradition has, has woven together the work of God with the works of man. And that's where they're coming from. We would say it's Christ alone, and our source of truth is a concept called sola scriptura, where it's scripture alone. So those are the traditions and why baptism is such a big deal in these, in these backgrounds. So is there a right way to baptize? The answer is, we believe immersion is the primary mode of baptism. It's not so much about method, but it is uh, what we see in the New Testament. Uh, Mark 1.5, um, John was baptizing people in water. When Jesus was baptized, he was taken up out of the water. 
Um, and so we see that the idea of baptism means to immerse or to dip is consistent. And so that's why we practice baptism, unless someone physically can't do it. Then we'll pour water over them. And uh, we're happy to do that. Do I need to be baptized again? Baptism is an essential step of discipleship. There needs to be only one water baptism by a professing believer in Christ. Our practice is to baptize anyone who has not willfully been baptized as a believer in Jesus Christ. On occasion, we will rededicate or rebaptize someone for a rededication. For those of you who come from a Protestant tradition where you were baptized as an infant and have not yet been baptized, those Protestant traditions would say there is only one baptism that you need to have, and it happens at your in infancy, and then you confirm your own faith later that you do not have a second baptism. I do not walk around with a little black book and go, you've been baptized as an infant? You've been baptized as a believer? We don't do that. But I will tell you this. Baptism is one of the most powerful ways the gospel gets communicated here at Fellowship. Because it's not coming from a preacher. It's coming from the mouth of a child. Or from a school teacher. Or an accountant. Or a bricklayer. It's someone who declares, I was once dead in my sin. And Jesus died for me. And he rose again. And I believe him and I will follow him. And people observe and they watch because they're searching. So my question to you isn't, do you have to have baptism to enter the kingdom of God? The answer is, no. Do you have to have baptism if you were infant baptized? I'm not going to go around with a club, but I will tell you, you should declare your faith. It's Jesus who saves. The danger of infant baptism or of any practice of the church is that that infant would somehow believe that that was what saved them and not the grace of Christ. That they would go, well, yeah, I'm good with the big man upstairs because, you know, some days ago I was, my parents got me baptized. I'm good. I mean, I don't go to church. I, don't, I was baptized and I'm okay. That, that is more prevalent than we know. Get baptized. It's the command of Scripture, be baptized. And when you are, you stand up and you acknowledge Jesus before men. And there is a response from God, a blessing on you. And He stands for you. And He says, well done. And others are drawn to Him. It's not necessary. It's essential. We have an opportunity for baptism next week. And how do we prepare you for this? Well, number one, we meet with you one-on-one. Kids meet with Keelan Smith, our children's director. Students meet with Tim Walker, our youth, our student pastor. Adults meet with myself or with Frank Eshman or one of our other pastors. And we talk with you about the significance of baptism and what to, what to do, what to wear, all those things. We help you understand what you're doing. You can be baptized next weekend, Father's Day weekend. What a... What a great opportunity to say, I belong to the Father because of the love of the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Father's Day. Be baptized. This fall, we're going to introduce a new discipleship pathway for our church, church church-wide, and it's called Rooted. 
Rooted helps you understand what you believe. We're going to go through this journey together this fall that culminates in a celebration night, and baptism is part of it. I find it's very common that when I meet with someone for baptism and I ask them, what do you believe about Jesus? It's, it's hard sometimes for people to say, to articulate for themselves what they believe. And so we help you. And Rooted will help you through that. We'll, you'll hear more about that coming. But this is how we prepare you for baptism. The signs of connection in this series are about connecting what connects us to God And it is Jesus and Jesus alone. Do you know him? Have you placed your faith and trust in Christ to save you from your sin? It's already been accomplished. You just need to believe. And then once you believe, be baptized. Declare the work of the gospel in your own life. And Christ will stand. We pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your work that was accomplished for us. None of us, none of us can earn righteousness on our own. Lord, forgive us when we live that way, when we, when we, when we practically live out our lives as if we're needing something to prove or to earn with you. God, Jesus has earned it all. So, Father, we pray that you would have your way in us. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.